by the time I got up there, of course, the state police SWAT team had been had been called out, and there had to be 80 police officers in that area. And I, you know, I'd worked closely with a lot of these people throughout the years, um, and you know, they were they were all very focused. Uh, they were all, you know, understood the gravity of what occurred. Um, and I was afraid that if I left my vehicle coming back in, I didn't, I didn't want to be mistaken for anything. I really didn't leave my vehicle, uh, absent them coming to get me. The police even had, uh, all kinds of aircraft up there, you know, with the infrared scanners and everything. Uh, but given the terrain, uh, given the fact that by this time, there were a lot of people up there, they weren't able to find him, and he did escape from the area. To the Murder in Podcast, where we dig up forgotten homicide cases from rural communities, small towns, and far off distances. Relive these violent and sometimes weird cases with the prosecution. I'm your host, Henry Valdez. I'm a writer, storyteller, and son of a district attorney who grew up watching my father try some of the most historic cases in New Mexico. For our inaugural season of the Murder in Podcast, we're digging into the Ricky Abeta capital murder case tried by lifelong prosecutor Henry Valdez. Over the next several episodes, we will tell the story of two young men, one a murderer, one a prosecutor, both born of similar blue-collar, poor Hispanic upbringing, but when reached a fork in the road, they took a drastically different path. Each path ultimately collided in a courtroom in northern New Mexico. I grew up in, in Santa Fe. Uh, I had a, I feel, a much different upbringing than you had. Mine was a very blue-collar uh, upbringing in a very rough part of town. So I grew up, you know, having to really fight to keep your lunch money. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon to to see people later in life when I became a prosecutor that I had grown up with. Well, Ricky Abeto was a young man, unlike a lot of other young men in that community. Uh, he, you know, had a job, you know, worked for his money, but he had been involved with an older woman, Ignacita. They had been going through, well, I guess, some troubled times. And they were living on his property, on his his family compound, in his home, uh, which was a mobile home on the property. And his mother lived up above a bluff, but it was probably 80 feet higher than where his mobile home was. In 1991, Ricky Abeta was a young Hispanic carpenter and construction worker living with his girlfriend, Agnesita Vasquez Sandoval, in a trailer on his family's land in Chimayo, New Mexico. Catholics regard Chimayo as one of the holiest places in the world, with the famous 
El Santuario de Chimayo Church, known for its healing dirt and the lure of thousands of holy pilgrims every year. And then Riariba County. Riariba County is a very rural, very traditional um, county. It's beautiful, a lot of mountains. Um, but one of the communities within Riariba, and it actually straddles the Riariba Santa Fe County line, is Chimayo. So it really is a very beautiful place. It's probably about 6,500 feet in elevation, and so it can be, uh, it just got a very beautiful uh, setting, you know, a lot of pinon, juniper, a lot of big trees, willows, other types of trees, and it's where families have lived in New Mexico really for, you know, three, 400 years. Ricky was an avid hunter the type of outdoorsman that could survive in the wilderness alone with little. He was a stellar shot and ultimately a cold-blooded killer. Ricky was not a serial killer in the stereotypical sense of the word. He wasn't stalking victims or even really thinking through his murders. He wasn't insane either, but he did go mad on January 26, 1991, in a white, hot anger. He murdered seven people. It was an average winter day in northern New Mexico. High teens in the early morning, but my midday, you could be outside in the sun with a semi-insulated jacket. Not an ideal day to move, but Agnesita had to act fast to escape the violence of her relationship, and with the help of her family and the right vehicle, she could make it work. Melted snow made the embankments of the dirt roads that led to the family compound a bit muddy. It was best to have a 4x4 truck or something big in general. Her friend Peter had a lifted Chevy with wheels big enough to crush a car. It was perfect. That, in a U-Haul, she thought she could get out before Ricky returned from work. As the ice melted with every second that passed, and every minute that passed was another minute she could have been gone, because Ricky wasn't going to let her leave. All in all, an average winter day on a not-so-average Super Bowl weekend. We wait. There's a snap. There's a kick. It is up. It is! No good! No one missed! Four seconds left! The Giants have won Super Bowl 25 by the score of 20... While most Americans watched the Scott Norwood kick sail to the right, costing the Buffalo Bills their championship, Deputy District Attorney of the First Judicial District of New Mexico, Henry Valdez, stood next to a New Mexico State Police car, observing the aftermath of the biggest mass murder in New Mexico's history. It was horror as he walked the path of the killer to enter the crime scene. He had to pass a deceased state police officer to enter the compound, shot nearly 200 meters away. As he came closer, he saw an executed sheriff deputy, shot point blank in the side of the head with a handgun. Further up was a monster truck type vehicle with a woman laying next to it and her five month old baby near the tire. A man lay dead in the back of a U-Haul truck, shot as he loaded boxes. In the trailer, more bodies, more death. One of the holiest rural towns in the world, settled against the Santa de Cristo Mountains, was covered in blood. It was Henry's job to observe crime scenes. It was his job to be there. It was his job to see for himself the worst. Mr. Walter Lynn promoted me to the chief deputy. So I was the chief deputy 
district attorney, which meant I was in charge of the all the legal staff. Uh, from about 1990, well, about 1989, actually, through uh, when I was elected district attorney in, in 1993. I was a young man. I was 29 years old when I became the chief deputy district attorney. The Chimayo massacre, as the press coined it, is a tragedy of insurmountable measure. It's an example of a dark path of escalated domestic violence that leads to families being destroyed and communities searching for answers. At Ricky's bond hearing, Magistrate Judge Richard C. Martinez said, It saddens me, yet it also sickens me when domestic violence results in such violent acts which eventually takes the lives of human beings, especially those innocent children. And so there had been some domestic violence. Ignacita had gone in and actually filed for a, what we call an order of protection, what some people would call a restraining order, but they're issued in domestic violence cases. On the previous week, and there was one instance, at least a reported instance, that on that Wednesday previous to that Saturday, that he had actually threatened Ignacita with a firearm or threatened her in some manner. Uh, we never really could figure out exactly what happened, but the police you know, were in the process of, of investigating that incident when, when this other one happened. So it was you know, unable to really complete that in particular investigation. To some, it was a headline that read, Chimayo Massacre. But to Henry Valdez, it was a career-altering murder case that changed the trajectory of his yet-to-be storied career. The day of the incident was an average winter day, but the day Henry Valdez decided to become a lawyer was a freezing, bone-chilling frost in northern New Mexico. I grew up plumbing. You know, that's what my dad's business was. And plumbing is hard work. Sure, it pays okay, you know, as far as crafts go, but it was really difficult. And when I was in high school, my dad made us work. If we weren't in school or sports, we were working. And so uh, during Christmas break, we were all working. And it was very cold that, that year. Um, it was one of those Arctic chills that come down. And uh, the pipes were freezing all over town. And so we were working, not around the clock, but, you know, 18 hours a day. And the thing about when you thaw out water lines, then the cracks get exposed uh, because once water freezes, it expands and it was, you know, it splits pipes open. And so then once you thaw it out, then you get all wet trying to fix that. And I do remember just kind of one day after three or four days of this looking down and seeing my uh, my insulated coveralls were covered with ice. And I thought, this is not a good way to make a living. Henry began his career early working in the district attorney's office. The Ricky Abeta case was his first Super Bowl as a prosecutor. And unlike Scott Norwood, he could not afford to miss. Well, of course, you know, this was before everybody had cameras everywhere. So we're not exactly sure uh, what order everything happened in, but what I've been able to ascertain what, what occurred in, in the order is that he comes in and he's, he's armed with a seven millimeter 
uh, Weatherby rifle that was specifically made for his for his height, his dimensions. Uh, he was an avid hunter and sportsman, and from all accounts, a great shot. And he was also had a 357 Magnum revolver. Henry stood on the property in Chimayo, looking out towards the mountains that surrounded it, hills suffocating the compound. He had an eerie feeling like someone was watching. Nearly every police officer in the area was on edge as they gathered around the property. Everyone thought Ricky Abeta killed Agnesita, her daughter Mary Ellen Gonzalez, her boyfriend Macario, their five-month-old son Justin, and her sister Cheryl Randon. They thought Ricky killed Rio Riva Sheriff Deputy Jerry Martinez and State Police Sergeant Glenn Hubert. They thought it was him, but they didn't know where he was. Henry figured Ricky committed the murders as it was highly unlikely anyone else did it in that community, especially with a high-powered rifle from those distances. The murderer had to be an expert shot, not an average person. The type of person, if given high ground, could shoot you from a quarter mile away. Henry hadn't been a prosecutor long, but long enough to know it's not what you think you know, it's what you know you can prove. Ricky, on the other hand, watched with his custom rifle hanging from his shoulder as he sat on the mountain overlooking the crime scene as police scrambled around his property. He knew what he did. He knew he killed him. He knew the police would kill him if they found him. So he ran through the trees and into the cold. Next time on the Murder and Podcast, we dig more into what happened on January 26, 1991. We'll see you then. I was waking up this morning, waking up before it's getting nine. Kind of heavy on my shoulders, tracking down some moments back in time. Could have swore that I was in it Down to every minute Don't know what I was sipping But I felt like I was doing fine Oh my Turns out that I just got